and everything goes as planned, but oh, oh well, you know, I made the point. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll be going through all 11 verses this morning, getting the right start. Uh, more often than not, life will present you things that you didn't think were possible. Things happen. For example, uh, you could have a depletion of funds, bankruptcy. You could have your loss of a job. Your children could get hurt. You could go through a divorce. Many other things. There are and there will be times when you feel you have lost everything. Everything you once had is gone. However, in light of those events, I want to tell you that I have good news. The good news is that you can rebuild and restore. Whether it's our local church body that needs rebuilding, our businesses, schools, or infrastructure that needs it, you can either give up or start to rebuild. Now, I'm talking about rebuilding. I'm talking about restoring not only physical buildings or walls or gates, in Nehemiah's case, but also our relationships. We live in a throwaway society that tells you if things go bad, ditch them and go. Instead of working on rebuilding or restoring that relationship. And I'm so glad when I responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ some time ago, for the first 33 years of my life, I rejected Him. But when I came to Him, He didn't say, ah, forget about it. He restored me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. God restored us. He didn't just start wiping everything out, but He restored us. And to restore and rebuild is not just a list of things that need to be done, but also includes a list of things that need to be undone. There are habits, behaviors, and patterns that need to be broken. There are hearts that need to be healed and relationships to be restored. It's challenging. That's why some people decide to walk away rather than take the time to rebuild or restore. They choose to start all over than paying that high price of restoration. And the hardest part about rebuilding or restoring is getting started right. That's the biggest obstacle because it's the hardest one to accomplish. And Nehemiah is about rebuilding. And in the first chapter, he shows us, demonstrates for us the importance of getting that first part right. Getting started right. And with that said, Let's read chapter 1 together, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Helkaliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslov, in the 20th year, while I was in Susu, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who have escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, 
who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather you from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my people to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong arm or hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and may the prayer of your servant who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer of the king. You know, I first read that, that last sentence seems a little out of place, but we'll get there in a moment. You see, he gets the news from Jerusalem, verses 1 through 3. And Nehemiah, the name means to, the Lord comforts what it means. The Lord used Nehemiah to revive the spirit of the discouraged exiles and to bring them hope. He was an energetic leader who combined a deep trust in the Lord with a precise or detailed planning preparation, careful organization, and discreet but energetic action. In the month of Kislev, that's around November, December, and in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that is during the reign of King Artaxerxes I in 445 B.C. We can see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Now the years before that have been very, very difficult. In 460 B.C., a revolt in Egypt was not put down until 455, and in 448 B.C., the ruler, or the governor of a province of ancient Persia, revolted against him, and he reigned over the Trans-Euphrates region. That's the western bank of the Euphrates River, if you're wondering. But yet, he was later reconciled to the king. So my point being, King Artaxerxes would be very interested in having some loyal supporters in Jerusalem in case there was an uprising in Egypt again. Then he tells us, Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. Now Hananiah was either a real brother, a kinsman, or a fellow Jew. But once again, if you go to chapter 7, verse 2, he calls him my brother, and he appoints him in the place of high office. So Hananiah was literally his brother. And he goes, I questioned them. It indicates that Nehemiah had deep concern for his people. He's asking, how are things going? See, he had concern for people, his people, even for those who lived far away. He was not just concerned about himself and his immediate family, but those of God's people who were far away from him. And I thought about this. Now, you could tell in the direct context he's thinking about fellow Jews. But I started thinking, what is in that for us? What, what truth can we get out of this? 
The truth is, dearly beloved, we need to have a global vision of what's going on around the world. You don't hear a lot of newscasts about persecution, Christian persecution. So I went to the Voice of the Martyrs and also to a Open Doors USA. You'll see their website up on the screen. And so I did some searching. And to kind of break it down, I won't spend a lot of time here. But this is over the last year. Over 340 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 around the world. 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 4,761. Each of those numbers represents somebody's son, daughter, uncle, aunt, cousin. Don't hear that reported, though, do you? 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings are attacked. 4,277 believers are detained without trial. They're arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. They'll sit in prison and they'll just keep them there without having a trial or anything. I'm going to be honest with you. My heart became real heavy when I came across that. Here we are in the United States of America. We get mad if the air conditioning ain't turned on. We get mad because it's not just right. We get fights over what kind of music we're going to play. And yet, our brothers and sisters are dying by the thousands. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. Paul talking about the physical body as an illustration about the body of Christ. He wrote, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll go on the record to say this. I am very concerned that we as a country are heading down the same road. It's you and I, believers in Christ, who can intercede on behalf of our country before Almighty God, and that we must do. Time is going by. We can't afford to fight over our little squabbles anymore. We must be united, get on our knees, and seek Almighty God. Here's the answer he got when he questioned them, going back to the text. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and his gates are burned with fire. That was devastating to Nehemiah to hear that. What was he going to do? Put yourself in that situation. You're asking yourself, you're asking these people about what's going on, and they give back this news. There's three different approaches you could go with this. Called the surface approach, where you just spin the problem. So it doesn't seem that bad. We see that happening in our political arena today. There's a scrapping approach where you say, okay, there is a problem to be dealt with, but you know what? Forget it. Let's just scrap everything and completely start over. Well, then you have the root approach that you make an honest evaluation of the situation, you get to the root of the problem, so you'll be able to solve it, which Nehemiah gets to the root 
of the problem. And we see Nehemiah's response in verse 4. He tells us when he heard these words, I mean, he, he lets, he listened. Notice he didn't go back to Hananiah and say, I sure hate to hear about this. Hopefully that will be repaired real soon. I'll be praying for you. He listened to his brother and heard what was going on. He is recognizing the problem. So we, can't, we can try to deny the problem, but we have to recognize that we have a problem. Not only did he hear about the problem, but he got involved. Look what he did. The first thing he does, he sits down, he's hearing, and he says, I sat down and he wept. Not only did he weep, but what does it say next? He mourned. He didn't throw a bunch of ideas out and then go pack his bags. He sat down so he can consider what was happening. He was deeply hurt and saddened about the condition of Jerusalem. When he pictured the, the city wall and the gates in ruins, he wept. It's not like he just wept and got over it. He mourned for days. He mourned over the destruction of Jerusalem like one would mourn over losing a loved one. When's the last time as God's people we wept and mourned for our country? For our neighbors, for our community, for our schools. All these politicians and leaders are running around talking about the problem, recognizing the problem, but no one really wants to get to the heart of the problem. And just bear with me. The problem is the condition of man's heart that can only be repaired and restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do anything else, we just keep putting out policies and policies. It may work, but it's just a band-aid. It will fall apart. He's seeking. He looked at his eye, was fasting and praying before God. He was spending time seeking God's plan. He focused on that. He fasted. He went without food. He put everything out of his mind and sought the face of God. Now, before you start fasting, go without food, consult your physical doctor first. Some of us have to eat. But there's other things we can fast from. Instead of watching that TV, instead of getting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on YouTube, all these other maybe we need to drop those out and fast and focus in on God. Because in order to rebuild or restore, you have to take God first. You have to take it to God first. Notice he doesn't consult with anyone. He goes right to God. God must be the first person that we go to. When you encounter bad reports or difficulties, prayer must be our first response, not our last resort. And I'm guilty of saying that. Well, at least I could do is pray. No, the most important thing I could do is pray. How dare I make a remark like that? What an honor and a privilege it is, is to be before God Almighty in His throne room. Seek audience with Him and He will hear me. In the same way, when we experience the goodness and blessing of God, the prayer with thanksgiving shall be our initial reaction. Not saying, look what I've done. Look what God has done. Brothers and sisters, members of Forest Creek Baptist Church, look around you. Look what God has done and is currently doing. This past Wednesday, a card came back. It was read to the Blast Kids. And this particular person is going through a very difficult time. Very serious illness. And this person wrote back, 
Thank you for all the cards, Blast Kids. I love you. I can't wait to see you again. And they quoted Psalm 105. For the Lord, Yahweh, is good. His loving kindness is everlasting or eternal. And His faithfulness to all generations. In light of this person's circumstance and situation, they stood, they still can find reason to praise God. Prayer must be our first, first response, not our last resort. And now we get to the prayer of Nehemiah itself. He begins with petition. You see the prayer of Nehemiah verses 5 through 11. I beseech you, O Lord. Now the word translated beseech in Hebrew means please. But remember the context in which Nehemiah is praying. He's been crying. He's been weeping. He's been more, uh, mourning. So when you look at their Webster's Dictionary, for the definition of beseech, it means to beg for urgently or anxiously. So Nehemiah is begging God. He, he's not saying, Lord, I beseech. Lord, I beseech you. He's crying out to him. Similar to Psalms chapter 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. God, you've delivered me before. Answer me now and be gracious and hear my prayer. When's the last time you just cried out to God? Some people at work might think I'm weird. I just yell out real loud and miss everything, riding around the ramp of DFW and screaming, Ah, God, I need help! Someone said, I may hear an amen. And that word translated Lord is Yahweh. He's not talking some disconnected God somewhere or disconnected leaders somewhere. He is talking to a God that's come in a covenant relationship with His people. A very personal God who will listen to each and every one of us. That's the God you serve. A personal God who knows your situation. There's nothing He can't do. But He will not act until you seek Him out. Look what he says. Nehemiah continues on with praise. The great and awesome God. That indicates his appreciation of who God is. The one who Nehemiah feared and God was the object of his faith. God being awesome is always the impression of his total character in person that leaves on somebody when they encounter God. Everybody who encounters God go, wow, he was just awesome. And I know that word gets played around a lot today. But you go back and look at the Bible, be it God Himself or one of the messengers, one of the angels show up, what's the first thing they say? Fear not. My New Testament professor asked us one time, as we're going through the Gospel about the birth of Christ, why did one angel show up and announce it? Then all the hosts of heaven showed up. You know what he said? He said, I can't prove this, but all the hosts of heaven showed up, they all would have had heart attacks and died. They couldn't handle that much. There's something about him. You can see that when Jesus walked this earth. There was something about him. Not his physical appearance, but when people looked him in the eye or the way he talked to people, the way he just handled himself. Something different. So he's a great and awesome God. He continues on with this phrase, who preserves or keeps the covenant, his gracious covenant. 
and His loving kindness or His mercy. And that's a central theme we see in the Old Testament. God's special covenant relationship with His people. For those who love Him and keep or observe His commandments. See, covenant love is supposed to be reciprocal. We are to obey God's commands which express His will. And we heard the term covenant, it should cause us to recognize God's faithfulness and our responsibility. See, we live underneath the new covenant, right? With Christ. God loves us. We are to love Him. Not only are we supposed to say we love Him, we're supposed to demonstrate that we love Him. How do we do that? By keeping His commandments. You shall love one another. It's hard to love some people, isn't it? Don't look at me like that. There are some people who are difficult. Some of your own family members are difficult to love. Let's just be honest. But he commands us to love. Love is not a feeling. Love is commanded. Because we are incapable. And then Jesus adds to it, not only do you love them, Tim, but you are to love them the way I love you. Wow. Which I am incapable of doing. I need the Holy Spirit to give me that ability to love like that because on my own, I can't. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but as I'm driving home in a short while, on 287 going up to the great town of Bellevue, someone cuts me off, and that thought goes off in my head, a bad word. Now, I have a choice. Now, either to miss that thought or to express it. And I'm thinking, man, I just stepped out of the pulpit more than an hour ago, and I'm still struggling with it. We need that covenant, that personal. You have a personal relationship with God? An intimate, personal relationship with God. And God wants to be with you as you go to work, as you come home, the good times and the bad times. I've heard testimony after testimony. I can tell you, after losing my mama and some other people, that the way I got through it, you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but even more important than that, the Lord God got me through it all. That's what got me through and keeps, keeps me moving forward. Look, he says in verse 6, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear. Now, now Nehemiah knew God could hear. <coughs> Excuse, me. Excuse me. He was asking God to take action. God hears. Now, think about this. How many people pray in any given day around the world? Each of you can pray right now, out loud or silently, and God will hear every single word. He knows every one of you. Better than, you know, better than you know yourself. How much hair you have on your head or how little hair you have on your head. He knows. And He can distinguish every person out. I cannot comprehend that, but then again, I can't comprehend God either. But He hears us. And this is where the prayer turns. He, he praises God. He petitions, I beseech you, O God, hear my prayer. He praises Him and then He says, Confessing the sins of the son of Israel. Now we come to confession of sin. But he's not pointing the finger at the sons, these people over here. He personalizes it. Look back in verse 6 and 7. I and my father's house have sinned. Now he's, he's identifying, yes, we have sinned too. He's emphasizing his indication, he's emphasizing his identification with the people and with their sins. We must never think that we're superior to somebody else. A mission of fault will not ruin effectiveness. 
Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm closer to God than any of you. What it does mean is I have more accountability because God's going to say, I put you in that position. What did you do with it? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, speaking to pastors, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording over it those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's what I'm supposed to do. Be a living example. He tells God, we have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept your commandments. Here is the heart of the problem. Remember how I said he addresses the heart? Disobedience gets right to the heart of the matter. God's commands are not unpredictable or erratic. He knows what's best for his people and for all society. So Nehemiah gets right to the root of the problem. Doesn't dance around it. Doesn't put a spin on it. Gets right down to it. And then verses 8 and 9, he reclaims the promise. Nehemiah reclaims, reclaims the promise. He says, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. And this through the whole time we can see that Nehemiah's prayer is based upon the word of God. Because like most of us, we come before God empty-handed. Not deserving any of God's favor or his attention. But he remembers both parts of that promise, though. Look back in verses 8 and 9. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Nehemiah realized that God had judged Israel justly. He reminds God that this had been anticipated in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. He's reminding God basically of his mercy and his faithfulness and his forgiveness. He tells him, yes, you're rightly to judge us, but you also tell us we come back with you in humility, you'll forgive us. That's what he tells each one of us today. If you confess your sin, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in the book of 1 John. You claim that. You know what happens? And I gotta be careful. I won't play once, I don't want to make emphasize one or the other, but I think a lot of us have a problem in this room because at one point. We confess some sin that happened a long time ago in our past, but yet we can't seem to let it go. And the devil knows that. He just keeps beating you up. Let me tell you, there is freedom in letting go. Let Give it over to God. Then build upon godly habits and keep moving forward. Because if you don't, it will paralyze you with fear. And you'll be forever stuck in that. We can begin again in our relationship with God if we return to Him with humility. I don't care what you've done this morning. There might be some consequences you have to pay here on earth, but you can be forgiven of your sin. It doesn't matter. If you approach God with humility, genuine repentance, and confess, He will forgive you. Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. My brother Larry said right here, 
right in, well, not right in front of me, over to the left. If I do something against him, before I go to him and ask for forgiveness, first of all, I have to recognize I've sinned against God because that's my brother in Christ. I'm not to treat him like that. It doesn't matter if he's my brother in Christ or not. I'm not supposed to do that. So first I seek out, God, God, I've sinned against you. Once I get that straight taken care of, then I go to my brother. But see, a lot of times we don't like going before God confessing sin. Because you know what happens? God holds a mirror up in front of you. Oh, Tim, why you at it? Let's talk about this, this, and this. That's painful. But until you let God do that, call it heart surgery, you're over be forever stuck. And when you realize, when you give that over to God finally, that you give your heart into the hands of God that are very tender and loving, you can trust Him. I'm telling you. You'll never be the same. Look what he says in verse 10. After he confesses the sins, he says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed. Redeemed. The price that someone pays to get someone out of slavery. There was a reminder of the Exodus story right there. We sing a song about being redeemed because Jesus paid the price to redeem us from slavery of sin and the wages of sin, which is death. Jesus paid that price. Do you realize today, if you're a Christian, what you've been redeemed from? The wrath of God, the enemy of God, it's all gone now. How would you like to go have a chat with the president right now? that you knew that you could walk into the Oval Office and have 10 minutes of His undivided attention. I tell you, you have audience with one who's far greater than the President. The very one who allowed Joe Biden to be President in the first place, and that's Almighty God. And you can go to Him at any time. You know, He, he wants you. He desires you to go to Him. So much so, He's the one who acted first by sending His Son. He's the one even acting now reaching out to you by your great power and by your strong hand. That Exodus story. Just as God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery, Jesus Christ has rescued us from sin. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, someone didn't pay a physical price for our redemption. He goes on, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That's what you have been redeemed with. Meanwhile, walks through all that. He gets to verse 11. He makes this request. Make your servant successful today. He had prayed for days, but now he was arriving at a decisive moment. After prayer was to come action. And Nehemiah determined that that time was today. Look what he says. Grant him, referring back to himself, compassion before this man. He's talking about King Artaxerxes right there. But he doesn't call him the king, does he? He says, give me compassion before this guy. He's asking God to divinely move or influence him. But from a human standpoint, Nehemiah had no reason to expect such a favor. 
According to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, this came king issued a decree to stop all the work in Jerusalem. And to make a request that was clearly contrary to royal policy could be very dangerous. But Nehemiah calls him this man simply to remind us that this king is simply only a human that's under the sovereignty of God. You know, it comes before God, title and position mean absolutely nothing. There's only one God. There's only one king. King of kings and lords of lords. And he has this sentence at the end that I mentioned earlier. We're going to wrap up with this. He says all that, and then there comes this little sentence at the end. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Now first of all, we hear that word cupbearer. For us, it probably means no big deal. Okay, he was a cupbearer. What does he do? The cupbearer had a very important position. Very trusted. He protected the king from being poisoned, and he did this personally by checking everything first. He was very trusted by the king, had a lot of influence on the king, because the king knew he could trust him. He had a very cushy job, if you will. Why would he want to travel 800 miles to be taunted and work like a horse? Because he was making himself available to serve God, and he was in a perfect perfect position to do so. The whole time he's praying this, now we know that he's in a position of favor among the king. And he's asking God to give him favor when he goes. And we find out later in the book that he actually goes to the king and asks for this very thing, knowing that he'd get killed for such a thing. But he was making himself available to God. God knew his position. So when it comes to rebuilding or restoring, dear beloved, we have to make ourselves available. Are you up to the challenge? Are you willing and committed to get the right start? Recognize the need. Don't play the surface approach. Make it better than what it is. Perhaps a relationship you have, you just feel like walking away. Don't do that. Take the root approach. Get to the heart of the problem. Get involved. Pray. And fast. And seek the face of God. And be available. Willing to serve God no matter what the risk. We have many problems, issues, and concerns in our culture and our society. We have a lot of our politicians running around talking about the great problems that we have. Coming up with all sorts of policies to try to address these situations. Be it poverty, education, whatever it is. But until we sit down collectively as a nation and go, yes, the problem is sin, and the only cure for that is the gospel of Christ. He's the only one who can change the human heart. Should we have policies? Of course we should. But if that's all we're doing apart from that, then we're just putting a band-aid on the situation and it's going to happen again and again and again and again and again and again as we've seen played out in our lifetime. That means you and I have to take time to act. Make time on our schedule. Let me just invite you to this invitation by saying this. Number one, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you confess your sins and say, God, here I am. 
I'm broken. I'm torn up. I'm hurt. Do whatever is necessary, oh God. I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. If you've done that, perhaps you're involved in some type of we like to call pet sins. And you're wondering why you come to church and everything seems good for a while, but then you go right back to it. It could be Monday morning and you go, why am I still? Because you fully haven't given over to Him. Or perhaps you're not willing to do the follow through and get started right. In other words, when you come and you, you admit your sin and you confess and repent, there's things you need to do. God will reveal those to you, but sometimes those things are hard. You mean I have to go to Larry's house and humble myself and ask for forgiveness, love? Yes. We don't like doing stuff like that, though, do we? We hate to admit that we're wrong. We'll blame everybody else in the room except for ourselves. It's been that way in the beginning in the garden. Isn't it interesting? Servant tempted Eve. Adam should have stopped her. Adam wasn't off in the distance somewhere because it says that he she turned and gave it to him. He's standing there the entire time watching the whole thing go down and did not say a word. Let me challenge you with this. If the Lord carries His coming and I'm still here physically, will history record that the United States of America went down the road of communism and social and all these horrible things because the people of God sat back and not did one thing. Didn't even take time out to pray. Too wrapped up in our own little world. And I, my heart aches. I've never been persecuted in this country for my faith. Yeah, I've been called a lot of names, but I've never had a face imprisonment death. And yet my brothers and sisters around the world are doing that. We need to recognize the problem there, beloved. Honestly. And do what Nehemiah did. Sit down. Perhaps we need to weep. Some of you may be dealing with something you never took time out to weep and mourn and go through that grieving process. This is a safe place to do that. This place is called a sanctuary. You know why? This is where God's meet with His people. This is where people love God. You're sick. You need to take time out. Mourn, grieve, walk through that process. But I beg of you, please do not walk out of here. And if you're online, call me, text me, do whatever you need to do. Don't let anything stop you. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Don't let him have that control and influence over you anymore. If you're a Christian, you're a born-again believer, you're a child of the living God who can do all things. Quit listening to the lie of the enemy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your great love. Truly, You are a great and awesome God. There's nothing impossible for You. And God, I pray that Your Spirit will continue to move that we will listen to Him, the voice of truth, and no longer listen to the lies of the enemy. Father, I know You want to rebuild and restore relationships. First, our relationship with You, then with each other.
But Father, we seek to rebuild and restore our nation. But it has to start individually with each one of us. Speak to us, O oh God. And may we have the courage and the boldness to step out and to step up and respond like your servant Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.